so this is our second podcast in the FGen series of podcasts. Today, Violet and I will be in, interviewing Steph from Steph's Place. So welcome, Steph. Thank you so much. Could you just explain to us what Steph's Place is all about and how that was formed? And then we'll just talk about, you know, how it's related to FGen. Yeah, sure. So I founded Steph's Place some 18 months ago, principally because I could see the UK becoming more transphobic, that trans people were having a hard time of it in regards to the media, with regards to politicians, how the gender identity was under threat. Uh, what particularly annoyed me was how gender criticals were constantly coming up with this term gender ideology, which none of us know what it means. <laughs> um, but it's obviously the politicalization of a group of people. And that really, really annoyed me. We're not an idea. We're not an ide ideology. We're biology. We're people uh, within a diverse world. And to single us out through the media in particular, give us bad press. I mean, you, the only time, for example, the, the Times give good press is for trans people that's perhaps in other countries. <laughs> they don't want to know about America and the, and the UK. We just get bad press. And that really, really annoyed me. And I was in stealth up to that point. I'm, you know, I'm lucky that I pass. I've got a reasonably thin voice. And I just felt like coming out, to be honest with you. So I came out of, out of stealth, launched Death Place, had to learn how to, because I'm getting on a bit. I've, I've never done social media before. So I got a mentor that helped me with social media, Aaron Bastini from Navarra, very kindly taught me how to use Twitter, bless him, and launched the website, went on Twitter, gained followers, started doing investigative articles, blogs, uh, and then last year I bought in for co-eds, for co-editors. Just through Twitter, you could find such amazing, talented people. And I think this is one of the advantages of being trans. We are a pretty bright bunch at the end of the day. There's some really incredible people within the trans community. And I could see that, like, from what Claire Prasharo does, she's just an incredible mind. So she became co-ed at Steph's place and then there was uh, Paul who just knows everything about sport and trans sport yeah and then we've got Julie Miller and Julie Besser is out in the community she works with various organizations and including training with in the health professionals so she goes into universities and things like that and then a few months after, Nicola joined us as well. And then she did like all the blog posts with Helen Webberley's tribunal. Bless her, she was working through to one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I remember reading that. It was, it was really kind of on point, very accurate. Absolutely. You did an amazing job. Yeah, and she's got a history as well, that sort of thing. Um, so it's not for me to say what Nicola's done. She's... You, you know, this is just a phenomenal team. 
that we've got. And we're knocking out investigative articles all the time. We're doing freedom of information requests, some information we publish ourselves, other information we give to journalists, we uh, send dossiers to MPs. We do a fair bit one way or another. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted. And our, and our figures just throughout this world, we, we get amazing. A number of people come to the website. We've increased another 20% in the last two months. Yeah, so just, just remind us, can, what, what is the website address? It's UK. so it's www.stepsplace.uk. And we're just out there to help trans people, really. And Yeah, and you do, you do, you do have a, a whole kind of catalogue of articles that have been written by various people in your website. Yep, and we've even got one or two gender criticals. Oh, really? Um, I haven't seen those. Yeah, well, I wouldn't recommend them. No, <laughs> no I'm unfair. <laughs> we, we try to be fair to gender criticals and fairness. It's a hard one to call because ultimately it upsets trans people. And I understand that. But if if we if I write an article, I've kind of got a bit of an obligation to talk to, to gender criticals. And then, of course, we've got the issue as well of kids uh, on Twitter in particular setting up accounts and playing one side off against the other. And I think there's also another element that we don't take into account and that's actually interference from other countries you know the gender wars it causes disturbance within feminism uh, and, and i'm a rad femme and i'm i've been a huge feminist all my life what the gender war does is it it takes the emphasis out of us holding men to account we are in a patriarchal society and I think ultimately all the time feminists are scrapping with each other. Men get away free. I should be out writing political articles about Boris Johnson. I should be out there writing articles about the pay gap for women. I should be out there writing articles in regards to universal uh, cuts, in regards to allowances and things like that in care. The, the actual social care budget keeps on falling and falling. And, and these are the sorts of things that need to be called out, which, you know, I'm, I'm Labour, I'm to the left. I used to be to the right. Uh, if you go back historically, I was actually a member of the Conservative Party. I mean, I left at the time when they brought out Sunday trading. Uh, so I left the Tories at that point and then kind of drifted into the middle and probably about six, seven years ago, I started to think how rotten society was and how we needed to go more to the left and to look after people and not money. I think we should be starting to put people first. So I'm now a staunch Labour supporter, a member of the Labour Party, I'm a member of Labour Trans Equality, I'm a member of the Lady uh, Labour Women's Network. I'm a member of the Fawcett Society. Uh, and I will do anything possible to help people. I was really interested what you were talking a little while ago about identifying as radical feminists. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about how inside radical feminism these conversations can be had, because 
I think as you were alluding to, in my experience as well, whenever I try to have conversations about especially trans-inclusive feminism, but also, for example, sex worker-inclusive feminism or just intersectional feminism in a more broad topic, that it is almost always infighting that sort of dominates. And I completely agree. Like, if we take sex work, for example, uh, with radical feminists, I've had quite a lot of discussions and it gets quite personal between liberal feminists and radical feminists on this topic. And the elephant in the room to me is that the men that are actually benefiting primarily from the whole system aren't even in the conversation at all. And we're sort of hurting each other, getting very upset on Twitter, for example. And the people that are actually um, responsible for the system aren't, um, aren't in this conversation at all. And I'm kind of feeling that pain. Yeah, I think you're right. I think sex work's a real problem. Um, one side of me sees that a woman most definitely should not be exploited. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of core. Uh, and then on the other side of me, I think, yeah, but prostitution's been going on for God knows many thousands of years and you're not mm -hmm. going to stop it. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the, the bottom, you know, that's a bottom line as well. Uh, and I'm quite radical on, on lots of things. I would legalise drugs tomorrow. Mm. You, you can't fight this. And yeah. I would also legalise prostitution <clears throat> because <clears throat> as much as it's against a woman's body, equally, as long as it's their body um, and they're not being controlled by anyone else whatsoever, so there's no pimps, then it's a little bit like abortion. It's kind of their right to choose. Do I like it? No, I don't like it. You know, if any of my daughters turn around and they want to be, a, you know, work in the sex, sex industry, I would be pretty gutted. So I yeah. can understand with other people as well. And yeah, you're right, you know, rad femmes. Uh, I mean, my own city, you know, there's been an application for like a lap dance club. And do I approve of it? No, I don't. And, you know, there's within gender crits, there's obviously a, a lot of rad femme. Uh, yeah. don't know how many you know i'm a turf with an i i'm a trans inclusionally radical feminist yeah. as, a, as a turf with an e mm -hmm. uh, but i share lots of their beliefs you know i looked at all the different elements of of feminism and i just identify as a rad them mm -hmm. and it actually comes from my childhood or, or not so much from my childhood but from when i was a kind of a teenager because my dad used to turn around to me and said, uh, the problem is that politics and religion cause war. And I very quickly worked out before I was probably 20, that it was men's uh, vision of politics and religion. Because who wrote the Bible? Men. Who edited the Bible? You can guarantee men. Um, <laughs> Who rules the world at the moment? Men. Who starts yeah. wars? Men. Who fight wars? Men. Who picks up the pieces? Women. And women are oppressed. Women don't deserve this. Women should have exactly the same rights as men. Mm. Uh, and whichever country you look at, if you look at 
in America, I think the the Republicans, for example, and they've sort of they all the Republican, I forget the name of it, like the chair group, just one below the the top guy. That uh, the it's kind of eighty five percent men. When we look at the cabinet in the UK, there's literally a handful of women. Even Margaret Thatcher, I think, only ever. Well, it took her years to bring a woman into her cabinet. This is well, all wrong. I think that sort of thing's an interesting example as well of like the patriarchal system being the issue rather than necessarily any individuals. So, for example, Margaret Thatcher is a woman. She's an individual woman. And I would say, in my opinion, that she positioned herself in such a way to cater to the patriarchy and the status quo. And she became useful to them within the capacity of herself as an individual, but she was not um, having any sort of solidarity to change patriarchy on a fundamental basis. And this is the way that a system like patriarchy works, a system of power works, is that it rewards those people that pay into the maintenance of the current power structure. So, you know, what I'm trying to say is women are, are rewarded for pulling up patriarchy, you know, maintaining it. That's where the reward inside that system comes from. And I think that's why the power distribution kind of maintains quite well, because, you know, you centralize the power and then you reward that power to people that keep the same people in control. I mean, of course, capitalism runs on the same basis, which is the powerful stay powerful. And basically what we mean, what that means is all power structures are going to benefit those that are in power because they can set the rules. I think it's a good example to remind ourselves that any individual woman that is empowered does not mean that women as a group are actually in a greater position than, than they were otherwise before that woman was empowered herself. I think you're right. The, it's just stacked against women. And, and that was one of the great things, I think, when we changed the name of FGEN, that, you know, because it was obviously originally gender gene, wasn't it? I remember what the, and gender Inclusion Network. That's right. Yeah, the Inclusion Network, which we kind of lost the inclusion, which was wonderful. Um, <laughs> and we brought in this feminist and the gender crits didn't like it. But I'm sorry, we are feminists. Um, and I'm proud feminist. Mm. And way before I, I was, you know, when I went into transition, I was a feminist. I've been yeah. a feminist for years uh, because I could just see how wrong it was for, for women and girls in this country. Uh, so when we changed, great. I consider myself a feminist as an accurate way to describe my beliefs. And I just happen to be a trans woman. That's who I am. Like that's, it, it's, it's not a active sort of, point of view that I look at the world through. It's an experience, but it's not an ideology as I so often um, accused. But being a feminist is an ideology and it's the ideology that I, as a trans woman and my sisters that are cis and every of all of the women and girls in my life are equal and deserve the same rights and opportunities as the men and boys in my life. You know, and that's a very simple thing. And I need that, you know, I feel in my own life constant pressures to sort of being in different environments, especially male dominated ones and being sort of objectified. And I have the 
additional experience of, of having transphobia with that. So um, it's a kind of interesting mix for me. But the point is that feminist ideals are critical to being able to, you know, help me live my life. Like if feminist movements hadn't changed things so that they are as they are now, and women had the vote, for example, and all of these things, would I have any imagination that I would be able to have the acceptance as a trans woman in the first place that I have today? Of course not. These are foundational principles that have led the way to the rights that I have today. And it's no way to extricate those things. There's no way. And the basis of on which we respect the gender um, of a transgender person, whether it's a trans man, trans woman, or a non-binary person, those bases are the same as we respect any, um, any cisgender person as far as their expression and how they live their lives. And so, you know, you have Tufts constantly talking about this thing of like, you can be a feminine man, you can be a masculine woman. Well, absolutely. And actually the community, like the trans community and the feminist inclusive community are the people that actually allow people to do that. Like the reasons why, in my view, people don't more um, express more diverse gender um, outside of the trans community is because of the patriarchal judgment of how people are pigeonholed into how they have to be inside society. So we all need feminism to get past that. Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, I think you've, you've you've nailed that, Violet. I think that's that's spot on, and it's really interesting to know. You know, you've got like WPUK, and they have a crack about non-binary. Sorry, these are people, and if if they want to be non-binary, they can damn well be non-binary. Mm, nothing yeah. wrong. Um, people are people, and whether they're trans Mac or whatever, it really doesn't make a difference how they live their lives. The important thing is we don't go around hurting each other. Mm. Uh, and then we start seeing the gender critical camp, camp uh, attacking trans people. The, the, they turn around and say, we're attacking women's rights. We're not attacking women's rights at all. I, I totally disagree with that. You know, we we have been going into single sex spaces on a case by case basis mm -hmm. for decades. Mm. Simple as that. How else um, do they the trans women and trans men were living? I mean, they would have noticed it far more if we were transitions and then we went to the boys' loops or whatever, and vice versa if trans men were going into the women's loops. Like there's there's no way. It's 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 preposterous, you know. It's it is, you know, and, and the just coming out as though we're after women's rights. We're not after women's rights at all. Um, yes, there's an overlap of rights. They've been there for decades. Mm. And now we're starting to see, like we saw the other week in the House of Lords, you know, oh, well, we, the trans women mustn't go in, into the female estate. Well, well, okay, some of them might not have to. And the system that they've got at this moment in time actually works. Prior to FGN starting, Steph's Place and your kind of co-hosts, um, co-writers, were, were doing a very similar kind of project, weren't you? You were trying to set up something very similar to what is now. Yeah, we, we were going FGN. to come up with, yeah, we were. We were going to come up with a second group. Um, the moment that FGN launched, we, we dropped that because it was very clear what the, what the potential of FGN is going to be, which is massive. Yeah. There's, I can see FGen 
being equal to Stonewall in years to come in regards to its place in society. I hope the gender war will be finished by then. I would love it if it were so that we could get on with proper feminism. Um, certainly there's obviously, if you look back historically, you can say there was a gender war going on in the States in the 70s with Janice Raymond and, you know, the book that she was coming out with, the statements. <clears throat> you can go back to music festival. You can go to, back to Stonewall to, to some extent, the Stonewall riots, because, you know, there were trans women in that as well, shouting for gay power. So that there's obviously been a gender war there for, for many years. But the, the gender war in the UK really only kicked off when Theresa May said to be kinder to trans people. That's really the deciding moment, because at that point, the gender critical movement decided that they were going to conflate the GRA with the EA. And this is something that I've been trying to do along with um, just so everyone knows, you're talking about the Gender Recognition Acts and the Equality Act. Yes, exactly. The Gender Rec Recognition Act basically only does one thing. It allows us to change our birth certificate. No more than that. Um, yes, we can go and get married and, you know, die in their right names, etc. But it's no more than that. It, it doesn't give us access to single sex spaces. Um, and in fairness, we all do need single sex spaces or safe spaces for sometimes, you know, uh, LGBT people often wanted to have safe spaces and safe bars and pubs and things like that. Um, we can't argue that there isn't a need sometimes for single sex spaces. What you can argue is you can't have blank exclusion. What they've done is very successfully conflated the GRA with the EA and there's nothing wrong with self-identification you know there's countries all across the world that keeps on bringing self-ID out as regards to legal gender recognition by self-ID you know more recently New Zealand Germany's bringing it in um, Ireland's obviously had it for years it's been available in Argentina for years and it's yeah. worth mentioning for any listeners that aren't aware, in the United Kingdom, currently passports and driver's licenses are changed. You change your gender on both of those via, guess what, self-ID. And, and, and this has been happening. I actually don't know exactly when, when how that has been. It's not quite, quite right, Violet. You've got to send in a letter from the doctor as well just to back it. But that's it. You know, it's I don't even think I need to do that. I need to show them my deeds poll. Um, maybe I need to show them that I had medication. Yeah, I had a diagnosis. Maybe that. Yeah, maybe you're right. But um, it it did not require anything like what I think. The thing with as well, one of the things that's I think confusing for people when self ID comes up is people think, well, surely we must be able to have some sort of qualification for someone changing gender. I, you know, this hypothetical person might say, I support trans people. I think that people should be able to you know, live their truth, be who they truly are. And it's like, that's lovely. But they think that there should be some sort of qualification. The issue as a person myself that's gone through the, the processes, like, and I will be applying for my GRC soon, um, like actually probably within a month, I'll, I'll start sending off the documentation. But, you know, the, the process so far 
there is no real, nobody along the way has been able to do anything other than listen to me. And so actually fundamentally, this is on a basis of self-ID, regardless what the difference is, is that I went and I self-identified to medical professionals and then medical professionals went, okay. And then they asked me, do you understand what you're doing? Do you have realistic goals? Are you otherwise mentally stable? So they were making sure I was healthy, but to determine if I was a woman or not was on my identification. That was the only verification that those medical professionals had. And to remind ourselves, these people are professionals because they know how to look after people's mental health. They're not professionals in what it means to be a man or a woman. I would argue that nobody is realistically an expert in that. So it would be quite foolish to suggest that anyone could be able to accurately verify this. Um, and, you know, so, and everything else along the process is literally just to verify how you're living your life and on a feminist basis i think it's quite valid to be skeptical of whether you know the verification of me living as a woman um because after all what does that mean you know uh yes i changed my name yes i um you know changed my pronouns and my title and everything like this you know sure um and of course I started taking hormones and I changed my clothes and I did all these things but like that's how I chose to live my life that's not what makes me a woman is it and so this safety that that, that seems to mysteriously arrive from some mysterious verification process actually I think in my opinion when you look into that it doesn't really make sense anyway all it's realistically doing is causing a bureaucratic mm. uh, system to just catalog and make trans people's lives difficult and make us scrutinized by other people for, I, I would argue, perhaps incorrectly, but I would argue for almost very, very little benefits. I think for healthcare, you know, we should be given help. And I don't, I don't have any issue with that, but I don't think that has anything to do with whether I'm should shouldn't have anything to do with whether I'm illegally a woman or not. And also it's quite strange. Uh, I think we wanted to talk about surgery later. So this might be a, a somewhat of a good segue, but you know, there's quite a strange thing. You know, when I um, got the medical letters to change my GRC, so I get that from my doctor, my doctor has to, to, to write a sentence that's sort of explaining what the situation with my genitals are. And I think as a liberal minded person that, any system that is requiring the government to have documentation asking about the nature of your genitals and what you plan to do with them, I think we might have made somewhat of a bad step there. That's not a very good precedent for the type of um, society I want to live in, I would say. The second part of today's podcast, we were going to talk about trans healthcare. Yeah. But just to go back to FGEN for a moment, Steph, how, how do you see Steph's place working in conjunction with and collaborating with FGEN as we go forward. Are you going to be continuing to do your articles and kind of the investigations that you do? And, you know, how is that different to you being a member of the FGEN steering group? Could you just talk about that a little yeah. bit? The Steph's Place is about a magazine. It's about um being perhaps more general market than FGen, albeit I think FGen will, you know, merge into it. There was an overlap. We're, we're huge trans allies. We're huge allies. 
and I love working with FGM because it's very, very professional. Uh, I can see it being a massive group, Kevin Fortin, so I've said. Uh, and I don't think too much had changed to tell the truth from the current arrangement that, that we've got. That, that I mean, Steph's place but website will eventually change. We, we have got real issues as regards we can't put video on, we can't put many images on because of the, the format that we I went with. I When I launched Steph's place, I never thought that we would be getting thousands and thousands of yeah, I mean, it's really it's really grown over the past year. It's massively grown. Started, yeah. It's massively grown. Um, I look at the stats kind of every couple of weeks, and I just don't know where the people come from. Um, we're getting certainly a lot more hits now from America. Various pages, I mean, obviously the homepage tends to get hit the most. Still get a lot of people look at Karen White's story. Mm. Um, still get a lot of people look at my story and then I get lots of emails saying gosh your story is very similar to my story well yeah that's because we've all got the same story so and I kind of get emails and photographs pushed through and we get lots of lovely compliments um, for me personally I actually want to become more of a feminist. I, I, um, I'm very involved with the Labour Party, as I've mentioned before, plug, 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 plug. Um, I'm actually the women's officer at, at Portsmouth CLP. Um, I represent women. I'm not particularly trans women because we're all kind of the same boat. Um, we've all got the same enemies. Uh, and Steph's place will just keep on it appears just to keep growing um i'm very privileged as i say of having uh, we are, are very privileged that we've got these amazing guest writers that keeps coming in we want to do more things all the time um and then we will complement fgen uh going through uh fgen is in a different league to us in regards to potential. Um, we are very much about a magazine, as I mentioned. We'll carry on FGN. I can't imagine ever doing investigative stuff. FGN is very much more about uh, represented academia, which was well needed. You know, we've got a number of gender criticals there from academia, you know, the Joe Phoenixes of this world, the Kathleen Stocks of this world. Who incidentally tweeted that I was a male the other day? Thank you, Kathleen, if you're listening. Um, I have got a picture on the website, the tweet, which she, she deleted very quickly, um, but I still managed to capture it. And we've got to fight these people, you know, and, and these people are representing. Sometimes I, I don't think they realize who the driver of this war is. Mm which is America, Christian extremism. Um, we know about hands across the aisle. We know what the idea is of splitting the T from the LGB, um, then going after LGB, and then going after abortion rights in the UK. Um, this is what's been happening in America, especially yeah. in Texas. Um, when you look back sort of 15, 20 years ago, 
Texan women had the same abortion or very similar abortion rights to those in the UK. They've all but disappeared now, thanks to the Christian right-wing extremists, um, who are very dangerous people. Mm. Um, and they think they're right, and I'm afraid they're wrong. You know, Handmaid's Tale is real. Mm. That's, that's the truth of it. It's interesting with trans rights as well, because there's been quite a lot of investigative journalism in, in the American rights um, looking at after gay marriage um, went through for um, lots, lots of states in America. They sort of saw that the, the American conservative rights saw that as a, a, a huge loss and ha- was a battle that they had been fighting for decades and, and, and lost. Um, and they're trying now to use trans rights as this wedge issue to sort of uh, basically considering us the the weakest elements, as it were, of the um, the most vulnerable elements of the LGBT uh, community uh, to try to fight another battle because they lost gay marriage. Uh, so just to add to what you're saying, Steph. One last question I have, you know, on the FGEN kind of collaboration topic. FGEN, when it was set up, it, it, it seems to be very heavily based on academia. There's lots of professors in there. Yes. I know, I know you've said in the past that you're not, you don't consider yourself to be an academic. No. I'm certainly not. Um, I come from, you know, I have a, a, a big kind of uh, experience in industry and aerospace field. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, going forward, how how is that, how is FGEN going to kind of accommodate yeah. those other I, areas I, rather than just I, academia? I remember that I was talking with Sally. Um, I think it was in a group, and um, I just turned around and said, "Well, I can write a bit," and she just laughed. Um, and I think that was kind of why I'm associated because I can write a bit. Um, Your focus is re- is really going to be around comms and media. Is that is that? Right. Yeah, um, around that sort of thing and knowledge. I'd like to think I've got a yeah. wide knowledge of trans things and feminists in general. That's kind of my strength. I'm kind of a jack of all trades and master of none, perhaps you could argue. And with it being called Feminist Gender Equality Network, I'm also wondering how do we include into that title? I mean, it, it sounds like we've not included uh, trans men in, in any way. I'm hoping that is totally wrong. You can I think Violet. Hey, no, no, that's totally wrong. Men yeah. can be feminists. I was a, before I was, um, you know, a transition. I was still a feminist. Feminist yeah. just means equality. Um, if you if you put it down to one word, feminist means equality between the sexes. Also, um, I think it's important to say that, like, depending on where a transmasculine person might be in their transition, many feminist issues are still going to affect their lives, like violence against um, women and girls specifically, like, for example, of course, pre-transition, that can affect transmasculine people. That's not an invalidation of anyone's identity. I mean, you know, TAFs will weaponize this sort of thing going, oh, you can identify well that. Well, of course you actually can't. It's going to be on perception. And so the issues of violence against women and girls is on perception, as we all know. So of course this is an an area that affects everyone and I know I I don't know as many trans men as I probably should and I think I need to get better in the community but the ones that I do know most consider themselves actively feminists for some of those reasons also because they realize how important it is for for, for all of our rights absolutely yeah so I just wanted to make sure that you know under that title of FGEN 
you know, that we are including all um, gender identities. Yes, yeah. we are. But, you know, at the end of the day, I was talking to a trans man literally only last week. Um, and he's totally in stealth. Um, the advantage with obviously trans men is that you get remarkably good looking men um, <laughs> whom at the same time have, have, uh, develop masculine voices because of testosterone. Yeah, yeah. Um, They are just the best. Trans men are amazing. Um, and I was talking to him. So he, he actually works in a factory and he struggles a bit with weights um because don't we all yeah we do <laughs> i can barely do 25 kilos <laughs> it's really pathetic uh, and so i said to him okay so you know you, you've been transitioned now for some time you're in stealth uh sadly had to come out not so long ago to the wages department which is really upsetting uh mm. you know within uh, and the he he said I said well what's how you you know what's the significant difference um you know you look like a guy you sound like a guy you're being accepted as a guy and he came out with something really really that was quite sweet he said the difference is with women and men is women can say sorry oh. and men can't mm -hmm. Um, and I thought, God, I've been saying sorry all my life. <laughs> um, so, um, but it, it just came down to small things. And, um, but I think in regards to FGN overall, the, the feminism isn't about sex or gender, really. It's just about equality. And we fight for women because women are left behind because of the patriarchy and oppression. So it's a matter of balancing things up. Yeah. So many different areas. I think it's as simple as that. I hope. I've I think when we when, when we talk to um, Sally and Natasha in one of our next podcasts, uh, uh, you know, we'll probably touch on this topic a bit more. And, you know, around the name establishing the name and how the difficulties they went through in finalizing that yeah i think i think it's important so you know just to kind of um state how we got to where we are today it was a, it was a discussion um we we look at you know it's very democratic uh within the group yeah and you know i'm delighted to be part of it um yeah. it's you know, to be in, to, in the start with FGen, um, it'll be around long after I've gone. Uh, this is going to be a massive group and it's obviously going to upset gender criticals. And I, uh, my only advice to gender criticals is to stop being an ass um, <laughs> because ultimately nothing's really going to change. You're not going to stop me going in a ladies' loo. It don't matter if you come out with a law, I am still going in a ladies' loo. There's nothing we can do. Like, if they if they made it illegal for us to live our lives, well, we still have to live our goddamn lives. Like, what are we going to do? Like, where am I going to go? Like, you're not going to stop living your life, are you? No, you're not. Yeah, and I'm not going to bloody detransition. You can't make me. So, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, I look at Violet. I see a most beautiful young woman. Period. You know, she blushes in my screen. But <laughs> I do. 
Um, and I'm sorry, they're not going to be able to do a genital check going in the toilet, for God's sake. It's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we've got a human, there is a human right to be able to legally change sex that has been there since 2004. Um, and it isn't going to stop. And um, for the record as well, if anyone thinks, I, I guess this is a contextualization, because we've talked a lot about the recent gender war, as Seth has been mentioning, but that 2004 um, rights that, we, that was brought in, you know, was after years and years and years and years of work to try and get it through. And only after going to the European courts, because this bloody country has been transphobic for a very long time. Like we have been as a country dragging our feet on trans rights for decades. Like this isn't a new thing. And this isn't, I, I find it, it might be useful for listeners to have this context that gender criticals will often lie and say, trans people have been only asking for rights in the last five years or whatever. And it's, it's all so fast and unreasonable. And, and now all of a sudden we want to use the toilets, public toilets, like crazy people. Um, but the, none of this is true. And this has been going on for decades, like to get to this position um, and actually Actually, as Steph rightly mentions, the only reason this kicked off is because Theresa May, um, you know, proposed the GRA reform as as a, a, a policy that presumably she thought wouldn't be popular, and it created this huge backlash. Um, but that's it's sort of a storm in a teacup. The bigger picture here is that we've all trans people, we trans people, have always been here, um, and relatively in different points of history you know cis people have done a better job of suppressing us and maybe they're doing a worse job of it now but the point is that the the actual population isn't created by anything that's happened recently all that's happening is the social and um, political environments is changing and there's a number of people like we covered that just do not like that change yeah so i mean we we probably all the three of us you know we're all trans women and we probably all have slightly different stories as to how we got to where we are today i mean if i just explain where i'm up to with with the medical side of things i was very lucky to get included into one of the pilot schemes i mean i'm in with the indigo one in manchester and initially i was with sheffield gic and i got absolutely nowhere with that i was on the waiting list for two years um after going to see my gp initially i was lucky enough to get transferred onto the Indigo one. And the reason being is because, you know, I've not had a first appointment. These are the criteria for moving over. My GP is within the Greater Manchester area and I'm over 80. So, you know, th those, those are the criteria. I think all, all these new pilot schemes, I believe there's four or five of them now, they all took on 500 um, clients, patients each. And I think the primary reason for that was to reduce the, the queues at the normal GICs. Now, I don't really want to get into the politics of what Theresa, uh, sorry, what um, Liz Truss mm. kind of claimed this is something that the Conservative Party did. I don't believe it was. I think it's something that NHS England themselves did. Um, but you know, I've I've used I've used the G, my GP, uh, and I didn't get to the official GICs, but I did get into the Indigo one. And once in that, I got through, you know, all four um, assessments very quickly and I'm, I'm now at the point where I'm awaiting um, surgery I've had my initial assessment and I need to lose some weight before surgery for safety reasons and I'm fine with that it's all you know it's all going to be funded that's fine 
I think your situation, uh, Violet, is a little different. Uh, maybe you just uh, explain what your situation is. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, yes, so I wasn't quite as lucky to get onto one of the pilot schemes in the in London, which is where I live. There is a pilot scheme, TransPlus, um, which is wonderful. And I actually do have multiple friends that were lucky enough to get onto that scheme. Um, and they've had a similar experience where the process has been so much faster than the other systems and the staff have been very, very kind. And, you know, a, a significant issue um, with the other GICs, uh, gender identity clinic is, is what we're, we're uh, talking to when we say GIC, um, which is where trans people in the NHS go through to get trans healthcare in the sort of traditional model. Um, and yeah, in these pilot schemes that have been introduced as an alternative um, routes, They've been much better with a key issue that the GICs have always had, which is being awful with misgendering, for example, which, in my opinion, is 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 absolutely un um, you know it's it's outrageous. Um, I had this experience. So my story is that I registered with the Tavistock Clinic in London, because that's where I'm at, and that's the only option I've had. I did that. Uh, back in 2019 so it's been um coming up to two years on the waiting list now oh is that right or was that three years um uh time is getting away from me but um and I have no idea when that waiting list all ends but I had this interesting experience where I was at a certain point in my transition and the only organization that I interacted with anywhere that was misgendering me and dead naming me was the GIC <laughs> Like, they were letters to my old name because they were the only people that were incompetent enough to not have picked up the message or moved forward at all and this is because they're completely inappropriate for the system the waiting list is outrageous and i i have absolutely no idea if they'll ever see me so, so uh, have you have you not had any appointments with them yet I haven't had a single appointment with them at all. No, um, I've never talked to, to anyone there. And and interestingly, with the standard GICs, you know, I've got friends that have gone through and they've had appointments. And what happens is you you go to the clinic and you have an appointment, and all you do is give them your information, like your um, I don't know exactly what they ask you, but you fill out a form and then they're like, okay, we'll see you in six months. And then they'll do the initial <laughs> um, appointments to actually talk to you about your gender in six months later, um, after you've already almost certainly wasted multiple years. So anyway, so this is the situation there. So my choice to transition, as you could probably tell, I have actually been transitioning and um, was to go with private healthcare. So, you know, I used my savings to um, pay for um, hormones, uh, so to get the diagnosis with a private psychiatrist and then go through a private uh, gender clinic. Um, and that started me off on hormones. And I was lucky enough to be able to um, get a uh, an NHS prescription. So that means I don't have to buy the hormones um, myself, which would have been a lot more expensive. So, you, so your GP has been supportive in that respect? Well, actually, not really. I did have to change GP. <laughs> um, well, my so first, thought, yeah, you've changed GPs and found one that is. I have. I've managed to find a GP. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, but yes, that's a normal thing for trans people as well. Yeah. If, if yeah. this don't realise is that, unfortunately, as Steph um, kind of alluded to, the training for GPs is not really there. And that's one of the primary reasons that they, uh, the general practitioners aren't dealing with these day-to-day 
um, trans healthcare issues because they're just not trained to do it. And this is an unacceptable position, really. It should be, uh, my opinion is it should be dealt with very similarly to contraceptives, for example, where the general practitioner can uh, prescribe these hormonal treatments and monitor the patients, um, but it doesn't have to be the specialist thing. So anyway, so I went through the private um, routes for that and also having to pay privately for um, fertility um, preservation as well because there wasn't any, any provision available until I'd gone to a GIC and then even then I'm not sure if they would have done it. Um, so I did all of this uh, at personal expense um, and and yeah I'm going to have to um, go private for my um, bottom surgery is, is what is what trans people tend to call um, genital surgery <laughs> um, yeah. and so uh, yeah so it, it that, that's but, I mean, just just for the you know the information for anybody listening, um, the the cost for this surgery is anywhere between you know ten to thirty thousand pounds, depending on where you go. Yeah. And you know, it really makes me wonder how do people afford to fund it themselves? Mm. Um, you know, I'm I'm not in a position to be able to fund those kind of figures. You know, I, I'm I'm lucky. I've got to where I have via Indigo and NHS. Yeah. Um, so how are you going to fund yours? Have you, have you kind of thought about what you're going to do? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I can't afford that at all either. <laughs> um, and actually, I, I'm in the unfortunate situation where, um, as I said, I funded the rest, which costs has already cost me several thousand pounds. Um, yeah. Um, I was able to afford because I, I had savings. Unfortunately, I was hoping they would go to other things, but they went to that. Um, but um, yeah, I'm in the situation now that I was made redundant as part of the pandemic as well. And so that's <laughs> limited my financial options even more. Um, and so uh, I'm currently uh, crowdfunding to, to support okay. my um, surgery. Um, and I've, you know, I, I did lots and lots of research. This is the thing that trans people end up doing is that because the healthcare support is not very good, um, often we have to be our own sort of um, advocates and and work out how to look after ourselves. Um, but yeah, so I've managed to find a surgery option that's on the lower ends of the costs, which is amazing, but also is a world-class clinic, um, which is the Supon Clinic in um, Thailand. Um, yeah, so you're having to travel overseas yes. to do this. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, and this is actually, I mean, I I, I think that the, the, the provision of, of surgery is actually hugely insufficient in this country in the first place. One of the issues they have is the bottleneck of how many surgeons we have in the UK. And um, one of the reasons I'm going to Thailand in the first place is because there they have specialist um, surgeons that have developed techniques that we just have not invested into in this country and again I think that's a systematic issue where an institutional yeah. issue where the NHS is simply not investing in this um, in the way that I think would be appropriate um, but yeah so um, yeah so my surgery is um, going to end up costing about £13,000 all told um, I've already um, paid a 20% deposit on that. Um, and, and yeah, I'm crowdfunding for the remaining 80% of the, of the surgery fee. So which, um, I mean, feel free to, you know, tell us which site it's on. If anybody wants to contribute, I'm sure they would. Yeah, if anyone does want to, it would be a really amazing. I'm, um, I've 
put my crowdfunds on my Twitter. So if anyone wants to find me, you know, you can search my name, um, Violet Lunston, and Twitter, I'll probably come up. My username on Twitter, if you want to find me directly, that is V underscore Lunston, and that's spelled L-U-N-D-S-T-E-N. So it's, it's a strange spelling, but um, you, should, you can find me there. On my Twitter accounts, I've pinned the um, link to my GoFundMe um, campaign there. Um, and yes, if you can, if you can afford anything, it, it would really, well, it's, it's life-changing. It I, is, I, absolutely. There's nothing else to, to describe it, really. Um, and if you don't have the money as well, but you would love to help me, you'd be willing to help me, um, any like likes and retweets, if you can see that, um, would be uh, absolutely amazing. So maybe other people that you know might be able to support as well. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I will definitely reshare those um, your Twitter info, you know, as wide as as wide as I can. Um, I think it's important to to also say that you know I know a lot of trans people who are doing this uh, crowdfunding. You yeah. know, they're trying to do it themselves, but they always kind of feel really kind of um, embarrassed to do it. And you know, it's a very difficult decision to put you put yourself out there in that position where you're basically you know asking other people to help. I don't I don't think you know, people should feel bad about that, you know, due to the high high cost of it. Um, you know, and if there are people out there who are, you know, in a, in a fortunate position who can who can afford to contribute, yeah, I mean, please, please do whenever you see these kind of um, pleas for help. I think it's very important. Yeah, I mean, this is a humanitarian issue, isn't it? Yeah. At the end of the day, this, this is about people's lives. Um, we know that around third of trans people commit suicide um sadly we know the rate in france is seven times higher than a cis population we know in america it's up to 10 um we know the gender criticals here like to turn around and say no 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 that's not right but i'm sorry i know trans people that's committed suicide and i've got lots of friends who also know got friends that's committed suicide and i guess as well to say sorry to interrupt stuff but just to say as well i think it's horrible when when people would use this to say well not that many people have committed suicide and it's an incredibly callous thing to say i know in in, in my friends base like my friends circle i should say within the trans population you know suicidal ideation and dealing with these feelings and having to deal with that as your day-to-day life you know feeling the dysphoria you know and um struggling with that that's a real like life experience that there is something we can do about that you know like just to say oh you know it doesn't matter if you if you don't actually kill yourself well you're not suffering and when what sorts of what sorts of rhetoric is this yeah it's, it's it's just wrong um and all this could be changed just by gps i mean i think in wales they've got this different system to in england where they've got these specialist gps that's been trained up relatively quickly in england we just haven't done that very sadly and the amount of risk that gps actually have by issuing out hormones even if they're untrained, is actually relatively low. Um, ultimately, what you're checking is kidney function, liver function um, for a trans woman, possibly PSA, uh, but there's and bone density. But there's not an awful. This is not rocket science. You know, women go to 
the GP and they get HRT just by turning around and saying, well, I, I need estrogen. Yeah. It's not the same for, for trans women. And so like I think what we, what, we, what we really need is for, is for trans healthcare to be set in the primary healthcare setting, i.e. your GP. Mm. I think that's part of what Indigo are trying to do, or it's yeah. part of their remit. But, you know, it needs to be, it needs to be much more widespread. It shouldn't Absolutely. be just in, in four or five pilot schemes. You know, it needs to be across the, across the whole Absolutely. UK. I mean, you, you look at the waiting list currently in uh, the Laurels down in Exeter. You're now looking at five, over five years. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that plays into what we were discussing earlier around, you know, whether you, whether you wait for NHS yeah. to get, get you through the whole system. Yeah. And, it, you know, it could be, it could be several years, yeah. you know, seven or eight years before you got to the stage of Absolutely. surgery on the NHS. I, I, think, I think that's an underestimation. Yeah, it probably is. And yeah. you compare that to, you know, you can have you can have surgery if you pay for it privately, mm. you know, many, many years before then. Yeah, so there's I mean, a huge discrepancy there. Absolutely. I mean, we, we've got to bear in mind that more and more trans people are coming out because it's socially accepted to be trans. Mm. Um, society generally accept trans people without problem. The media might not. The gender crits are and the, and the you know, the gender crit allies in parliament might not um, but society are okay with trans people just as they are with gay people just as they are with black people uh with tall people and ginger people you know the society understands that we're in a, a very diverse world really it's 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 very sad that we find this south in, in this position that we've, we've got to fight for health care um I mean, I personally had to go private all the way through and even private, you know, it took me the best part of 10 years to get all the way through. And have you, you also used the GIC system or tried to? No, I, I'm, I, I transitioned privately. Um, the, the, in actual fact, the most expensive part for, for me was electrolysis mm. um, <laughs> because I had over 300 hours of electrolysis. Yeah, and we're, we're talking seventy-five to eighty-five. I was, I was paying an fifty pounds an hour, right? Um, and then I had laser treatment on top of that. Um, it was just my hair color was just wrong. Mm. Um, it wouldn't accept to a laser, but equally mm. you can cover it with makeup. So I was years and years in electrolysis, sometimes doing double shifts. And, and when you're having that needle stuck in your lip, it hurts big yeah. time. Um, and so electrolysis and my electrolysis lady you know technician she was amazing and she, she mainly looked after trans people she was incredible um and she was 50 pounds an hour and that's actually cheap yeah. it is uh, it is cheap yeah. yeah yeah uh and i think my total transitions are over thirty thousand. um i had surgery in this cat in the uk on the 2nd of july 2019 uh, it was definitely the best day of my life. Mm. No question. No question. Um, and did I care a bit, a bit of blood on the floor? No, not at all. You know, so it was a bit of a shock when you go to the loo for the first time and you see, you know, a bit of mess. Um, but hey, um, it's, it's it's totally life changing. I think e even just having hormones is a huge step. Mm. Um, yeah the and that's so easily done by a gp um 
if they took the time. And I know they're overstretched. Uh, I know it's, you know, they, they need to get potentially a couple of days training, I understand, from the Welsh model. Uh, but they can do so much. There's going to be more and more trans people. We can't have queues that's potentially officially five years. That probably in reality is 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I think that I think that you know the GICs, the traditional GICs, are completely kind of out of date now. Yeah, absolutely. That model does not work. No, it don't. Um, and I think it's it's important here to contextualise. There's a very good reason that the GICs, are the, the the older GICs, are uh, inappropriate is because they were explicitly originally, you know, back in the 60s and 70s when they were sort of starting to establish intended to slow trans people down i mean they wanted at first they wanted to stop as many people transitioning as possible and they only wanted to let people transition if they thought that they would they would pass they would blend into society very well and so it was explicitly started as a filtration process to try to put blockades in the way of trans people now things changed over the decades and i'm not saying that the current GICs run in such a manner but their structure of their appointments and how far apart they set their appointments is set to slow trans people down. This initial appointment where I was mentioning that you just go in to fill out a form and then you come back six months later to actually have a real first appointment, that's simply to slow people down. There's no rational reason to do the administration of the GICs in such a way other than under the... Um, the sort of excuse or the reasoning one might say more charitably uh of just slowing people down giving them thinking time for example now this yeah, is that, that also kind of plays into this um real life rule that they try to apply yeah which again is just to slow you down it's it's to say okay well you know if you do this then after this amount of time we might give you hormones and then if you've been on hormones for this long it's it's almost like you're getting healthcare for good behavior which again is yeah, it's not an appropriate system. Um, and the difference with the pilot scheme like Indigo that you've mentioned is that they're just simply not doing this. What they are doing is informing trans people as to what their options are, what the risks and the realities of these treatments are, such as hormone treatments, such as hormone blocking treatments, such as surgical treatments. And then they're getting on with the process of actually administering this healthcare. And lo and behold, this system doesn't need to be so slow and it doesn't need to be so complicated. Again, to Steph's um, points is that once general practitioners have the training, they can deal with so much of the day-to-day -day, um, you know, healthcare that, that a trans person would need. And because of course, like apart from the fact that we're, we're taking hormones typically, um, we don't have different needs from cis people typically. So it, it makes sense because we have this issue. And I, 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 before I stop talking, I'll just say one final thing about my experience. When I had to change GP, the reason I had to change GP was not because as someone might imagine that they were dreadfully transphobic. It was because they were well-meaning but untrained, ignorance in the specifics of trans healthcare and the specifics of trans people they were, in my opinion, trying to do their best, but they were very concerned because they didn't feel that they had the support that they needed from the NHS to be able to administer this healthcare and feel that they were 
safe doing so. And frankly, my view of it was that they were worried that they would be punished if something went wrong. And under this concern, and which I, I don't mean as a, in, 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 in a small concern, because of course that could be their career, but they need the support to be able to be secure to, to do this and realize what they need to do. Um, and because they didn't have that support, they simply refused to help me. And they forced me to go to a GP that would help me, which is just not an appropriate system. Yeah, absolutely. It's all very sad, but we should, I mean, I think the plus for trans people and, you know, for all of us that's got gender identity issues, if you want to use that word, is that, okay, we've got, we are not going to crack the health issue overnight, but as a, as a group of people of a community, uh, FGEN's given us a huge amount of hope mm. um, and we're kind of trailblazing to some extent I mean there's been trailblazers every decade you know we can look back to April Ashley bless her who obviously recently passed that was you know one of the initial tra trailblazers and Christine Burns and, and wonderful people like that um, all the time, more and more people are coming, uh, especially young people. When you look at the, the stats, um, the amount of trans non-binary that's in their 20s is, is almost 44% of the total community. Mm. Um, there's a lot more people to come out. There's a lot more kids to come out, especially non-binary. Um, and I think that whatever the gender criticals do politically i'm sorry there was this tsunami of trans people and non-binary people that they are not going to stop yeah uh, and this is why they really need to give up this stupid war over uh self id it's yeah. it's not going to change anything everyone's just you know their safety's women's safety is it going to be exactly the same we're just going to change birth certificates and we could get on with proper feminism that well i say proper feminism i'm doing proper feminism already but i can then concentrate on looking after women and, and doing my best for women for women that's in prison that we that shouldn't be in prison at all prison should be there for women we can concentrate on issues like that we can start looking at the pay gap. We can get more women into government. Mm. Um, we, we can highlight so much more. And the resources that's being left, lost in the gender war is utterly pathetic. And when I see some of the tweets that like Kathleen Stock's coming out with a bee penis, oh, for goodness sake, <laughs> Kathleen, this is stupid from an academic yeah that's yeah. coming out from a professor uh, i'm sorry i just do not agree with it we should be talking about women um we should be talking about society and everything that's wrong in society and my god there's an awful lot of rot that's wrong in this society at the moment um that's been driven by capitalism in particular uh and i just wish that people you know could just come together try and understand each other's points of view, which I try and do with gender criticals. Um, yes, I can understand that they're concerned about sex offenders. I'm concerned about sex offenders. 
um, I've been attacked. But when it comes to prisons, then, okay, why don't we have trans people, for example, on the uh, local and complex boards? Because we can tell trans people. Well, yeah, that's fair. This is the issue. So we've currently got cis people turning around and looking at a potential sex offender or a potential bona fide a trans woman um, and saying which estate he, she should be going into or they. Um, we're actually seeing still 11 trans women uh, sexually assaulted every 33 days in the male estate. It don't get any uh, as well. Yeah. The vast, vast majority of trans women are in the male estate. Yes, they are. The vast, and, vast and they're being sexually abused, yeah. and no one cares, or the gender criticals don't care because they're not cis women. Yeah. And I'm sorry, these are human beings, you know, the, the human beings like Violet myself and Victor Vicky, um, that's been caught up for whatever, you know, and perhaps they are criminals and perhaps they deserve to be in prison. But they don't deserve to be sexually abused. Mm. Um, and if that was being shouted about much more, we would we would be making sort of progress. Uh, and unfortunately, at the moment, those sort of odds are stacked against us because of media and everything. And this is something so, that we can do in FGN is to be able to shout out about this much more. Um, so you know, if you if you just kind of imagine all the energy and money and time that's wasted on so-called you know gender critical wars gender wars um if that same energy was to put in be put into positive things just imagine absolutely. what we could do you know absolutely you know and julia serrano's made this point in whipping girl um finn mckay i recently read a book that come out from finn mckay it's called female masculinities in the gender war mm. um now, I found a couple of those chapters quite difficult because Finn's uh, lesbian, a uh, trans lesbian. Um, and forgive me, Finn, if you're listening, I've explained that wrong. Apologise. Mm -hmm. um, but the what Finn says in the book um, is that both sides should look at it from the other point of view. <clears throat> and I try to look at it from a gender critical point of view and and one of those things is I don't want sex offenders in prisons. I don't want to see females sport ruined. I want to see female sport exactly as it is now. Um, but I also want to see trans occlusion. And at this moment in time in the UK, they import problems in regards to sport. Uh, it used to be Hannah Mouncey. Um, then we got Lowell Hubbard. So Hannah Mouncey's from Australia, and then uh, we've got Lowell Hubbard from New Zealand. Now they're on Leah Thomas from the States, mm. who's going backwards, and she will constantly go backwards as her uh, testosterone levels get lower and lower. And, yeah. you know, I've noticed myself over 10 years how much weaker and slower you get, um, and it's quite considerable. Yeah. Um, we've got Piers Morgan out there, constantly going on about women's sport. None of us want women's sport ruined. This, don't, this is not going to happen. But they're importing problems. And yet, if you turn around and say, look how many trans women are getting killed in America, well, they don't want to listen about that one, do they? 
oh, and no trans women's been killed in the UK for donkey's years, well, actually it's a couple of years. Um, but the, they want to import the, the issue of trans people in sport. But they've got to import the story because there ain't no trans athlete, elite trans athlete in the UK. So the sport issue is kind of a non-issue in the UK. In reality, that's the truth of it. Um, prisons, well, they're pretty much sorted. The only thing I would say is that trans women in the male estate, we need to look at that issue of why they're being sexually assaulted. We do need to get trans people on local and complex boards so that we can make decisions where alleged or bona fide trans people can go. And I've done a recent investigation into hospitals um, because the current or the new attack that's going to come in the next couple of weeks um, from the House of Lords, from Baroness Nicholson and her cohort, uh, is going to be trans women in hospitals. So just before Christmas, I put out uh, some freedom of information requests to 10 different hospital boards, foundation trusts, uh, to see if there's problems with complaints in hospitals over a year period. So I gave them a, asked for the stats for a year on how many complaints have you had from uh, natal women that trans women were on the ward. And not one hospital foundation trust that's replied has not had one complaint. Mm. And yet we've got the House of Lords going to be debating this very issue in a matter of a few weeks and the gender crits will come up with an astroturf campaign to keep males in inverted commas um in the into men's wards and vice versa they want trans men on the women's wards for a problem that don't exist yeah. They, feel, they feel very much like manufactured issues these, don't they? Oh, absolutely manufactured. Yes. Totally, totally manufactured. I think the thing that's strange about this whole thing is that it seems like so much of this rhetorical energy from the sort of anti-trans um, position is, is this imagining that you can just wish trans people away, wish non-binary people to not exist anymore. Uh, if you only marginalized us enough, then we would go away. And this is the problem is like, it is, doesn't even necessarily be, it isn't even necessary for there to be no issues. It's necessary for us to actually look at what we can do in the actual world, the circumstances that we live to, to, to deal with this. You know, if, 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 if this government does actually en enact any of these um, proposed bans that they're, they're banding about for trans women to be excluded from various things, well, we're gonna still exist and this issue isn't going to go anywhere. I think this is the thing, it's like, so much of this seems to be around linguistics is they, a lot of the time people will say they're not, um, they don't, you know, they don't think that non-binary people are real, for example. But the thing is, is that what's the reality of a label to describe someone? You know, it's a communication device. If the person themselves understands themselves better by labeling themselves inside of the non-binary, um, you know, umbrella, 
and that I can understand them better by them expressing that they are neither male nor female, or perhaps they consider themselves some combination of both, you know, whatever their individual experience might be. If that communicates the, 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 the identity of that person better than just saying that they are a man or a woman or what have you, then that is the truth of the matter. What we're looking at are diverse individuals that we want to be able to understand and respect respect them they respect us that's the goal of being human you know and this is to the end of actually including everyone yeah you've come up with a really good point there violet because i was talking to michael walker at navara back in last august Mm. and he said if someone says they're trans they're trans if someone says they're gay they're gay and i believe them yeah he said but if a gay person turned around and said I'm gay, and then suddenly, you know, there's a gay guy, and suddenly had a female partner. Well, obviously, that gay person ain't gay. <laughs> um, and the same with us. If, if, if we suddenly turned around tomorrow and said, oh, we're going to be cis, which I'm sure none of us is going to happen, you know, because <laughs> only around 2% of trans people actually detransition. Even though that the gender crits are going to be coming up with this, oh, we're going to parade people and say they've detransitioned. It's very few. It, you know, you're looking at around two percent. Oh, it's all such a mess. Yeah. yeah. Hey. <laughs> There's such a big, you know, it's such a big topic. We've we've discussed a lot of kind of yeah. we've touched on a lot of issues today. Um, we've gone over our allotted hour. So I think I think we should probably end it there um so thanks thanks so much for coming on today Steph, and talking to us both any any final words from you violet um no i i've, I've really enjoyed this conversation though thank you so much for coming on Steph, and thank you for being here as well vicky it's it's been lovely thank you everybody thanks to our listeners